Well, six months to uh, Christmas. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Why are we singing a Christmas hymn at the last Sunday of June? Uh, we're talking about Advent um, from Thessalonians, not Christ's first Advent, but his second Advent, which the last verse there is referring to the, uh, the old song, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has a ton of verses out there. There's a bunch uh, that aren't in our hymn book. Uh, one of them says, O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Uh, make uh, sure the way the Lord is here, and uh, close our path of misery. And so it's the idea of Israel in, the, in some of the verses singing out, praying for the coming of the Messiah. Other verses in Emmanuel are talking about his second coming and freeing us and leading us to heaven. And so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're talking about here his second advent. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13 I'm going to read those verses in a second, but I want to just give a little disclaimer. Some of you uh, see yourselves as uh, end times uh, junkies, and uh, you've read the books, you've seen the movies, you've got the charts in your Bible, all those type of things. Uh, that's not what this sermon is going to be. Um, and so some of you are going to be disappointed in that. Um, and I don't think when Paul was writing this to the Thessalonians, Thessalonians, that that's what he was trying to do. I don't think he was trying to give them an end times chart to put up at the front of their church. Paul is writing to a group of Christians, right? We've been talking about ordinary people. Uh, and we looked at their conversion in the book of Acts. You know, sometimes when we read about Bible characters, we think they're, they're super special. These are ordinary people in ordinary circumstances who were undergoing a lot of affliction in chapter 1. Paul says, much affliction with great joy. And so there's a church that's going through all these types of affliction, and even in the midst of that, the word, the gospel is going out all through Macedonia, all throughout the region. And so Paul is talking to this church who is undergoing this great affliction. And remember at the beginning, we talked about these three words that Paul introduces. He praises them for their faith, for their love, and their hope. And Paul, in a sense, takes them out of his normal order where he talks about faith, hope, and love, and he switches it and talks about faith, love, and hope. And these are the things that are going to help us undergo these afflictions. And here, Paul is focusing on the hope. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, until the advent, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We are all undergoing affliction from time to time. The church here is undergoing persecution for their stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That persecution is bringing physical problems. They are physically being persecuted. Uh, It was also at times bringing financial ramifications. That is that people weren't allowed to work or they were kept out of the market system because of their uh, spiritual stand. There was relational afflictions. And so all these things are true. And then Paul addresses here, what do Christians do when, when somebody they love has passed away? So there's that type of affliction as well. And all those things we also face to one degree or another. And so what does Paul say to us in the book of 1 Thessalonians? He wants to remind us that he wants to remind us that during our afflictions, remember that Jesus is working through you. Right? That, that God is working through you even in the midst of affliction. That God is working in you, and eventually God will rescue you. So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. First of all, remember that Jesus is working through you. He says here in verse 13, I don't want you to be uninformed. There's there's a great statement. Hey, church, I don't want you to be uninformed. In other words, I want you to live like you know the way, because you do. Now, that is, he isn't saying I want you to live like you're a know-it-all, but I want you to live like you know where you're going, so I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to live like you have hope. We, we all have faced affliction, and I, I hope as you were listening to these girls' stories today, you recognize that sometimes your affliction isn't as bad as you think it is. And so, I mean, these girls are going through all this, and they're finding hope in that. And so we as believers should be living constantly as those who have hope. Live like you're living for something or somebody greater, right? We're living for Jesus Christ. This week, uh, some of you commented, I, I posted a, a poem that I came across uh, in, in reading the Four Chair Discipleship book, which I'm, I'm reading with some people. And um, it, it's a poem that's been around for a long time. It's been, it's, there are many different forms of it. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, thoughts of where it came from. There's, there's one belief that it was written in a prison cell in Africa. That might just be an urban legend, we're not sure. But it's a great, great words anyway. It says this, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. That's hope. I am finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I, am no, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, 
position, promotions, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, top, recognized, praised, regarded by, uh, or rewarded. I now live by faith. Lean on his presence, walk by patience, and uplifted by the prayer and labor by power. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I know, uh, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are to live as people who have hope and know where we're going. Paul says, don't be uninformed. Second, uh, Paul says, I I want you to be an example. I'm sorry, I'm using the clicker today because I have a complicated PowerPoint and I'm already confused. We want you to be an example. You know, as a church, Uh, we are constantly reminded in this book, and and we've talked about it, chapter one, verse six, and you became imitators of us and for the Lord, for you received uh, the word with much affliction, with joy in the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example. Paul says, look, the whole point of, of understanding this, of being informed about what is to come, is so that you can be an example to other people. There's a wealth of experience in this room. Now, that doesn't mean a wealth of experience of we've done everything right, There might be just a wealth of experience of don't do what I did. This didn't work. But you know, when we have a church that has an older congregation, there's a wealth of experience that young people want to tap into. They, They want to hear about. They want to walk alongside somebody. And we need to leverage that experience for the glory of God. So I ask you this morning, how are you leveraging the experience to impact people around you? Remember, Jesus is working through you. Whatever that affliction is, he is working through you so you're not uninformed, you have hope, and you can be an example to other people even during affliction. And also in that process, as we're doing that, Paul reminded us earlier that he wants us to be gentle. Um, I just love these, these words in chapter two, verse seven, and I think we need to be reminded of them. But we were, Paul and his companions, gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Uh, so we need to let our, life, our love shine in a gentle way. We need to make people a priority. Make people a priority. In chapter two, verse eight, Paul says, so being affectionately desirous of you. Paul had a, a mission, he had a direction, but people were his priority. We want to share all of our lives for the glory of God. So whatever affliction that you're going through, whatever the trial is, remember that God is still working through you. 
The second, remember Jesus is working in you. Now, this was the introduction in chapter uh, four. We've gone through this, verse three. For this will be, uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Your sanctification. That's, that, that kind of overrides this whole chapter that God is working in you for your sanctification. And even in the affliction, God is working in you for your sanctification. So it's hard to say, but affliction is good. When we go through affliction, like none of us pick that, right? If we have a menu, right? And affliction is at the top of it. You go, I think I'm allergic to affliction. I think I've tried that before, <laughs> right? My face swelled up. No, I don't like affliction. We, we never choose that. But affliction is actually good for us. Now, in our reading um, we try to read through uh, the New Testament every year, the Old Testament over two years, the New Testament and the Psalms every year. So we've been in Psalm 119 this week. Um, and has, I, love Psalm, I love the Psalms, as you, as you know, and, and Psalm 119 has all these, these different words for God's word, laws, and um, just, just all these different words describing that and his love for it. But another word keeps popping up in Psalm 119, and the word is affliction. I don't know if you noticed it as you were reading, but whatever form of affliction you are going through, um, there's some good in it. So here's some good that came from Psalm 119. Let me just read these to you. Uh, Affliction reminds us of God's promises. In verse 50, it says, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promises give me life. So the psalmist says, look, when I'm going through affliction, one of the things that I just keeps me going through this is that I remember your promises. And it's just one of those truths in life, right? When we're going through afflictions, we grab onto those promises a little bit harder. When things are going well, it's like, oh yeah, heaven's out there, but I don't need it today, okay? But when affliction is coming, you're going, I'm kind of thinking of heaven uh, recently, um, yeah. And so affliction reminds us of God's promises. Next, affliction reminds us to obey God's rules says, I just, this is one that I, I, I will quote sometimes in counseling. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Well, there's nothing like going the wrong directions and encountering the consequences of your wrong directions that makes you go, that didn't work. And so the psalmist says, it was good that I was afflicted. That was a good thing because I learned I don't want to do that again. Okay, so it helps us learn God's rules. And in the sense then, as you kind of go a little bit deeper, then affliction helps us grow. Uh, Affliction, uh, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn your statues. It helps us to learn how to apply God's word in a right way so we don't go down the wrong path again. So it helps us uh, learn his rules, it helps us grow. Affliction also will lead us to repentance. Psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you afflicted me. So look at the contrast there. I know that your rules are righteous, okay? Hebrew poetry, the second line, teaches us something about the first line and that in your faithfulness I was afflicted. Why was he afflicted? Because he was going contrary to God's righteousness. And so 
I know that you kind of every once in a while said, whoa, 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 wrong direction, discipline time. I repent. I need to go the other way. That's what affliction does to us. And then finally, uh, affliction uh, is right, gives us a right perspective during affliction, gives us uh, life. He says in verse um, 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And in a sense, he's saying, look, if I, if I didn't know what your word said, if I didn't have that hope, um, if I was uninformed, I wouldn't have made it through this. And I've heard that from many of you. If it wasn't for my faith in God, if it wasn't for people coming alongside and praying for me, if it wasn't for my belief that God is going to deliver me, I would have never made it through. And so during affliction, God is still working in you to mold you and shape you into his image. So remember Jesus is working through you. Second, remember that Jesus is working in you. And the focus of this passage and where we'll spend a little bit more time is being reminded that Jesus is eventually going to rescue us. And um, so I want to say some things that we believe as a church about this passage. Again, I'm not going to give you uh, too much of a timeline here, but there's some very simple truths that we need to be reminded. And the first is that we believe in a bodily resurrection. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Okay, just so you know, it's just a nice word for dead. Okay? I don't want you to, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Note here, he doesn't say don't grieve. That's not at all what Paul says. He says your grieving is different because you have hope. Don't grieve like people who have no hope. Okay? And say not to grieve. Then he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so what are we... What are we supposed to base our idea of what is to come? On the resurrection. That's, that's the context here. Even so, in the same way, though Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What's our resurrection going to look like? For this we declare to you by word from the Lord. This is what God told us. That we who are alive, okay, who are left until the coming of the Lord, the second advent, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry, a command, with a voice of the archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now there's a few things that we keep in mind here. In other places, Paul tells us to be dead is to be present with Christ. And now Paul is talking about this resurrection. And so we want to understand that he is speaking here of a bodily resurrection. Uh, keep your finger here, turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll describe this a little bit more in detail of what this resurrected body uh, will be like. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to read a few of the verses here. Uh, verses uh, 42. Um, He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, 
What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul gives us the example of planting a seed. He says, you plant a seed, seeds don't come up, plant sprouts. Okay, and so he uses this illustration. And then in verse 49, he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of man in heaven. So there's something new that's coming. Here's just a few things to think about. Our bodies in heaven will not wear out. I don't know, I thought that would get an amen from this crowd, but I guess not. All right, so I misjudged it, right? Our bodies in heaven will not wear out. They're, okay, thank you. I mean, I'm sorry, but I, I was in the foyer. I heard what you guys were talking about, okay? Oh, this hurts, and this hurts, and this hurts, and I have surgery. And it's like our bodies in heaven will not wear out. Okay, that's that. What was what was sown perishable will be will grow imperishable. It's not going to wear out. It's imperishable. And so, as we think through that, and and most scholars, this is just amazing things that now we have to all start about. Well, what will our bodies be like? Most scholars, when we're talking about heaven, think we get some twenty to thirty year old body that we just get for the rest of eternity. I'm okay with that thought. And so our bodies will not have signs of age because it's not perishable. So we're not getting older. That's a thing of this world. Our bodies will not be subject to disease. Yes. Look, there, I know that some of you are struggling with that. And because of the fall, we have these diseases that are ravaging our body. And in heaven, that will not be a factor. Our bodies will have uh, no dishonor. It, it's kind of interesting here. As, as you think about what Paul said, it says, be sown in dishonor, be, uh, you know, you come up in honor. What does that mean? And, and what author want? In heaven, we're all beautiful. I don't know if that's exactly what it means, but it, it's certainly not dishonor. Our bodies will have power and strength and freedom. And as, because the example is Jesus, when the disciples, except for the road of, of, uh, on the road to Emmaus, when the disciples see the resurrected Jesus, they know who he is. This amazing thing is somehow in heaven we're going to be recognizable. It's kind of a, a cool feature. So we have this bodily resurrection. Now, we also believe, and, and please, before you start throwing things at me, let me explain the whole thing that I'm going to say here. We believe in a universal resurrection. Now, the term here is resurrection, and I want to explain that. Um, I've done this timeline with people. This, this is the only timeline you're going to get. So you have an Old Testament and New Testament, and I sit people down and I ask them, before Jesus, when somebody died in the Old Testament, where did their body go? John, most people don't get that. They always say, in heaven, no, your body goes in the ground. Where does their spirit go? Okay, spirit, um, in, in Luke, it refers to the spirit being uh, in Abraham's bosom. Okay, a familiar, safe place. 
okay? That's what happens to the believer's body. What about the unbeliever? When an unbeliever dies, where does their body go? In the ground. Where does their spirit go? Yeah, the Old Testament word is sheol, okay, or hell, okay? New Testament, it's getting easier now. When a New Testament believer dies, where does their body go? In the ground. Where does their spirit go? With Christ, okay? Paul says to be absent from, to be, notice, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, okay? In the New Testament, in our days, when a non-believer dies, where does their body go? Ground. And where does their spirit go? Hell, okay? Folks, this is why we need to be on mission. Just stop here. This is why we do missions. This is why we give to missions. This is why we share the gospel, because we believe this to be true. Now, what Paul is talking about here is what happens when Christ returns. And specifically, there is a bodily resurrection. There's a bodily resurrection where we are now united again with our spirit and we are given a new body that we are to live with Christ forever and ever and ever. But for the non-believer, there is also a bodily resurrection. So what scripture teaches is that at that resurrection, the believer heads to reward, heaven, um, we're going to talk about in a minute, present with God, all these different things, physical rewards. That's a wonderful thing. But the unbeliever to judgment. So when we say the bodily resurrection is universal, what we say is that there is going to be a, a resurrection of the dead, all dead. The believer to everlasting relationship with Jesus Christ, the unbeliever to everlasting separation. Now, there's something else that this passage teaches that is in contrast to the major thought in some of the movies that you've been watching. Um, back to 1 Thessalonians. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel with the sound of a trumpet. Well, that's not the way it happened in the movie. In the movie, all the clothes were just left in a nice little pile on the street and there was like some sort of secret rapture. It's not what Paul describes here. We believe in a visible resurrection. God is gonna call us up. It's visible. Don't believe the world is going to be going, news reports, millions of people disappeared from the earth. We don't know why. Don't think that's what it says here. But all the movies have it that way. We also believe, and listen to this, church, we believe in the imminent return of Christ. What does that mean? That this could happen at any moment. I've been sharing the last few weeks the, the privilege of sitting on uh, ordination council, which we did uh, recommend ordination, and it's coming for this uh, gentleman. And uh, we were going through the process, and this is the, this is the worst part of the ordination council because every pastor has a verse that he just loves to just throw in this whole thing. 
And so they were just peppering him at this point in time. I just sat back. Um, I, didn't, I didn't want to participate in this part. But when we say the imminent return, then somebody says, well, what about the temple being built? Or what about this? Or what about this event? Listen, look, I, what Paul is saying to the church is that whatever affliction you are going through, be reminded that God is working through you. You're still on mission. God is still working in you that he is molding you and shaping you into his image. And that at any moment, he may rescue you. He may return to bring you home. So keep going. His return can be imminent. Any moment. And the, the old phrase, Maranatha, means come, Lord, come. And there are just days that you say that more than others. And then this also brings, hopefully, it brings great hope. Because when the resurrection comes, it restores God's presence. There's a storyline of the Bible that in, in the beginning, God is present with his creation. He's walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden. He's talking with them face to face. And when they rebel, they are cast out. And so the story of the Bible from chapter three is about their rebellion and the whole book tells about their restoration. How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to the presence with God? And you and I can't even imagine what it be, would be like to be present with Jesus. To be face to face with him. Now, honestly, I'm looking out and some of you, it brings a smile and some of you are kind of like, uh, because we, we can't even comprehend it. We, we take these stories and they, they, they seem out of context from us. Adam and Eve are walking around the garden naked. That's creepy. Sounds like Portland. No, that's, the, sorry. Just, it was in the back of my head. It, what they're saying here is that Adam and Eve lived in a moment with no shame. No shame. No dishonor. No, nothing hidden. In perfect relationship with each other and with God. And we have been in rebellion and that presence has been taken away. Now, it's also going to be a fulfillment of all God's promises. Now, here's where they start peppering the pastors with all these, well, when will this happen? And when will this happen? And what will the millennium be like? And what will this be like? And you can just see guys, you know, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know how God's going to fulfill all of his promises. I just know he's going to. Some of them are for us, and some of them maybe for Israel. Some of them, we go, I didn't even see that one coming. But all I know is what God is going to do is fulfill all of his promises. He's not going to hold any of them back. There's none of them where he's going to say, I was just kidding with that one. All of God's promises are yes in the advent, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And all this, Paul says, is through God's power. This, that's, what's, that's what is the assurance of all this. It comes because God is powerful. Now, as you preach through a, a text like this, I, I could do, you know, diff, pull up different stuff from seminary and try to impress you or whatever. I can grab a bunch of books and we can talk about different orders and different things. But I don't, again, I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. 
He was writing to believers who were going through affliction. And I know, I know, I, I'm looking out at faces who are afflicted with pain, who are afflicted with fear, who have afflictions in their finances and relationships with their kids, who, who are going through some trials and tribulations, disease, whatever it is. And, and what I want to say is what I hope, I think what Paul is saying is this, Look, in the midst of your affliction, God is still working through you. You're not done. In the midst of your affliction, God is still molding you and shaping you into his image. And even in the midst of, of fear of those who have gone before us, those of you who are widows or the, the fear of disease, we are reminded that God is going to rescue us, that this is temporary. Whatever this affliction is, it's temporary. And God will one day restore his presence, fulfill his promises through the power of Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this? Our, our hope, how we efface the affliction, what we believe to be true, is a testimony to those who are lost. Peter says it this way. He says, I want you to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. In other words, Peter's saying, I expect that you're going to be living so differently in the midst of affliction that people are going to go, what's wrong with you? Why do you still have a smile on your face? Okay, are you not getting this? And, and when they ask you, where does this hope come from, from you? You're to answer with gentleness and respect. And I don't know that that's what we're known for as Christians. We're either know-it-alls, or as we talked about last week, you're the Eeyore. Okay? When affliction comes, nobody ever says, let's go get Eeyore. Okay? Said it last week. What do they do? They go get Tigger. Okay, Tigger's a lot more fun. So when affliction comes, be honest, Christian. Do people see hope in you? Or do they see Eeyore? So our hope is to be a testimony to the lost. Second, our hope should be a motivation for the church. Because we believe that Christ can return at any moment, we're not just sitting here waiting to die. Okay, this isn't, this isn't a holy huddle. We haven't barricaded our ends in here saying, we can't do anymore, Lord, come get us quick. No, we are out there rescuing the lost because we believe our time is short and we believe that our God is powerful and we believe that we have something to change the world. And our hope is this morning an encouragement to those in our church who are afflicted, who are struggling, whether that's persecution or whether that's financial or relational or physically, whatever that affliction is, we're reminded that God is still working through us, God is still working in us, and God will one day rescue us. So our vision to love God and love 
people, that love people is specifically to bring them hope. That's how we love people. We talked about loving people um, last week, and if you weren't here, a very important message as far as vision for our church, so go back and listen to that. But we talked about making our love sizzle. Um, again, you gotta go back and listen to it. I'm not gonna define that. But we talked about how that is one of the things as a church that we wanna be known for. And so how do we do that? Part of that aspect is the way that we face affliction. Because we have hope, it's easier to love each other through whatever that affliction is. So love God, love people by bringing hope. My encouragement to you this morning, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever challenge, whatever feelings of loneliness, know that affliction God is using in your life to impact others, to bring you more into his image, and he has promised you something far better to come. Let's pray. Lord, I want to uh, remember those in our church. Um, I won't name them by name, but I know that there are those who are feeling the pressure of affliction. I pray that they would be encouraged this morning by the truth of your word, that you are good, that even in the midst of the darkest things, you can still be glorified and praised and honored. I want to pray for those who have gone through affliction for so long that they're losing hope, that they feel the the depression and anxiety and pressures of this world just crushing their hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would shine the light of your spirit into their hearts, that this week you would remind them of your great love for them, that you would encourage them that you have not left them or forsake them, but that you love them deeply. And even in the midst of years and years of affliction, that you have something far better for them, that they might hang on and trust in you, that they might embrace the community, as Rich said, the hive, that we would be place of hope and love for the hurting and the sick and the lost. Help us to be purposeful for the kingdom of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.